Hello and welcome to the Pediatric Anesthesia Journal's Featured Article of the Month podcast for December 2023. These monthly podcasts are published on the journal's website and you can also subscribe to them via iTunes, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Dr. Nilwari Vitharana. This month's featured article is on error traps and preventative strategies for adolescent idiopathic scoliosis spinal surgery, which features in the November edition of Pediatric Anesthesia. It's another brilliant article as part of our series on error traps. I'm joined today by lead author, Dr. Dudley Hammond, Assistant Professor of Pediatric Anesthesia at Wake Forest University School of Medicine, Department of Anesthesiology. Welcome, Dr. Hammond. This article is jam-packed with some really useful information on anesthetizing for these cases. Can you fill us in on broadly what are some of the key error traps that may be encountered in scoliosis surgery? Thank you, Neilru, for inviting me to be here. Been looking forward to this. I also want to give a quick shout to uh, my co-authors on uh, the paper you mentioned. I certainly wouldn't be sitting here without their uh, contribution. Posterior spinal fusion for adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. It's a common surgery amongst uh, adolescents, but can be very challenging. There are some poor patient outcomes that can result from this procedure, a nerve injury, uh, vision loss, massive blood loss. And on top of that, our anesthetic technique can compete with what the neuromonitoring technologists are trying to achieve. And so we wanted to write about certain ways to uh, mitigate uh, some of these problems. And the air traps that we came up with were properly positioning the patient, designing an anesthetic that decreases neuromonitoring uh, interference, and you want to try and limit bleeding and uh, develop a proper fluid balance. And uh, last but not least, effectively treat the pain intraoperatively and postoperatively. So we're going to delve into these error traps in a little bit more detail. It's always a dread positioning a patient in the prone position. What are some of the key issues here? So before we have problems with being prone, we have to go prone and we have to prepare for that. First, uh, before going prone, I like to protect the eyes and place a lubricant in the eyes and then cover it with tegaderm so I can fully see that the eyes are closed. I like to place a bite block in order to protect the tongue from any masseter contraction that is stimulated by motor evoke potentials. Once you prepare to turn prone, you should disconnect your lines any IV uh, that's connected to any of your infusions, that way they can't be pulled out while turning prone. And you wanna just put a protective uh, cap on your infusions to keep them clean. And then when you hook them back up, you should uh, clean the IV sites with some alcohol. And then once you're prone, you wanna make sure that you maintain a a neutral spine so that you don't have any compression on the cord that would lead to cord injury. You want to make sure that you check uh, certain pressure points. The eyes are really important. You want to make sure there's no pressure on the eyes uh, that could cause blindness postoperatively. We could do that by uh, a lot of the prone views that are used that the face rests in have mirrors on the bottom so you can check the eyes frequently. If you don't have a prone view with a mirror, some people will use a cell phone to take a picture of the face if it's hard to see uh, from the position that you are in relation to the patient. 
checking the hips and make sure that the femoral uh, nerves are not compressed and making sure that there's neutral position of the extremities. So that there's no stretch or compression on any of the nerves like the ulnar nerve or stretch on the brachial plexus. And one last comment about positioning the patient prone is that it really should be a team approach. The surgeons, the anesthesia team, and the nurses in the operating room should all work together to position the patient correctly and make sure that you're all working together and feel like that has the best result. What is the role of neuromonitoring in scoliosis surgery and what are some of the impacts of anesthetic agents that we might use on this neuromonitoring? Yeah, so neuromonitoring lets us have real-time data on nerve integrity. Somatosensory evoke potentials and motor evoke potentials are the uh, neuromonitoring that's used. The SSEPs average over time. They run continuously and average over time. The motor evoke potentials can't be run continuously, but are affected greatly with neuromuscular blockade. The two of them together work well to detect any insults in nerve integrity. However, our anesthetic agents can really affect how well we can uh, monitor these nerves. Volatile uh, agents like desflurane, sevoflurane, and isoflurane all increase latency and decrease amplitude. And designing an anesthetic that is going to allow the neuromonitor to the technologist to correctly monitor the nerves, but also allow us to one, keep the patient still and to be able to wake them up quickly, which isn't easy. Those are competing concepts there. And so we have to have, if we can't use neuromuscular blockade, then we have to have the patient very deep under anesthesia. And so certain anesthetics that we use don't compete as much with our neuromonitoring. Opioid infusions certainly are a mainstay for these surgeries. They don't inhibit the neuromonitoring. And so running opioid infusions, things like remifentanil, sufentanil, or fentanyl infusions allow us to keep them in a deep plane, but can be metabolized quickly. Now, you're going to want to run something in conjunction with that, such as propofol or low levels of volatile agents. Desflurane, I think, is falling out of favor due to its effects on the environment, and it is expensive. However, it is metabolized quickly and can be quite useful. If you have concerns about those adverse effects of of desflurane, then propofol is another good agent to run in, in doing a total intravenous anesthetic. The volatile anesthetics lets you see your MAC and can know somewhat yourself of the depth of anesthesia that you're under. The TIVA's not as much. And so I think it's important to be in contact with the neuromonitoring technologist. They can tell you by the EEG, your depth of anesthesia. I think it's good to have a good relationship with them and, and to stay in, in close touch with them about you know, how your anesthetic is affecting what they're trying to do. There's also physiologic parameters that can affect the neuromonitoring. Decreased temperature, hypotension, and anemia all can lead to uh, interference with the neuromonitoring. So those are all things that you're going to have to pay close attention to, keeping the patient normothermic, establishing blood pressure parameters with, with the surgeons, where they uh, want the blood pressure during dissection, typically greater, MAPs greater than 65, but maybe during dissection, MAPs between 
65 and, and 70 are going to be where they want it. And then being able to bring the blood pressure up during instrumentation. And then, you know, monitoring the hemoglobin and making sure that uh, you're not anemic during the, the surgery and needing to transfuse. What are some of the immediate corrective measures that should be done by all members of the team when you know that there is a loss of evoked potentials? Yes, yeah, so there's a great um, app called the PD Crisis App Checklist that's provided by the Society of Pediatric Anesthesia. And there's a section of that called Loss of uh, Evoked Potentials, and they can help guide you the checklist for when there is a loss of evoked potentials. I think the first and most important step is to make sure that everybody in the room knows what's happening. And so you call a timeout and everybody focus, stops what they're doing and focuses in on the problem at hand. And each team in the operating room needs to have their, their own checklist. And so surgeons may need to back a screw out or uh, reverse any hardware that they've placed. You make sure they're not uh, causing any stretch on the spinal cord when they place rods or that they've pinched any nerves with the screws that they've placed. Um, Neuromonitoring is going to want to make sure that there's no technical difficulty, uh, any of the pins being removed um, during the surgery, and make sure that all of their connections are intact. And then for us as anesthesiologists, we want to check their position, make sure that there's no pressure points on, on say, the femoral nerve or, or any of the uh, brachial plexus, we want uh, some of those physiologic parameters that we talked about. We make sure they're not hypotensive, make sure the patient doesn't need to be transfused, make sure they're normocarbic, and make sure they're warm. And then, of course, you're checking the depth of your anesthetic and making sure you're not too deep. And that's a conversation you're having with the neuromonitoring technologist. And if all those things, if you've corrected all those things and, you still, and you're still running into um, decreased signals, then you may, uh, you're going to discuss it with the surgery team and they, they may want to perform a wake-up test. That's uh, easier said than done. I think, again, talking with your neuromonitoring technologist is important. And for us, we, we run a volatile agent and an opioid infusion. And so when there's a wake-up test, we turn off our volatile agent and we turn up our flows and we leave our, our opioid infusion running. And that way, then I start to talk with the neuromonitoring technologist and they can let you know through the EG, not only EG, um, when the patient is starting to emerge, but also the EMG can, can be very helpful just because there's not any neuromuscular blockade on board, the EMG can be quiet as well under uh, deep levels of anesthesia. And then once the patient starts to emerge, that will start to uh, become, the EMG will become much more active. And when those things start to rise, then I speak with the patient and ask them to move their, their feet and their hands and go from there. How can we mitigate the issues in regards to preventing excessive bleeding and maintaining intravascular volume? Yeah, so even the healthiest of patients for this surgery can have quite a bit of bleeding. And there's large incision and there's quite a bit of dissection as well. And knowing some of the things that can lead to increased bleeding is important for the provider to know. Things like increased cob angle, increased number of levels being fused can lead to uh, increased surgical times. And those are all red flags for 
having increased blood loss. Here at Wake Forest, we have a dedicated team of providers that are, that are all familiar with posterior spinal fusion. We have several anesthesiologists who are just dedicated to doing the spinal fusions. We have the same circulators, same scrub techs, and of course, we work with the same surgeons. And that helps to make things more efficient in the operating room and decreases operative times, and that can lead to decreased uh, bleeding. You want to make sure you keep the patient warm. Colder temperatures are associated with increased bleeding. There's some things preoperatively you can do. Administration of preoperative iron, PO iron, four weeks prior to the surgery, 325 milligrams twice a day, uh, like say four weeks ahead of time, can uh, lead to decreased uh, transfusion requirements. Administration of EPO is another route you can go. I think the costs are a little higher if you go that route. Um, and so I think people would probably rely on iron. Intraoperatively, there's some things we can do as anesthesiologists uh, using antifibrinolytics, uh, most, more specifically tranexamic acid, also shown to decrease transfusion requirements. If anybody wants to do a deep dive into dosing regimens on uh, tranexamic acid for posterior spinal fusion, uh, Dr. Susan Gooby has a wealth of information out there and has really helped guide me in my own practice. At Wake Forest, we use a loading dose of uh, 10 to 30 milligrams per kilogram over 15 minutes for the loading dose. And then we'll do five milligrams per kilo per hour of maintenance throughout the case. And it's I think it's worth noting that the earlier you start the tranexamic acid, the more effective it is. And I think whether you want to start that before you've gone prone is really provider dependent and how comfortable you feel about hooking things up and then disconnecting them for the flip and things like that. Other, other things that can help you is making sure that you've got a proper fluid balance as the surgery is ongoing and using goal-directed fluid uh, therapy. For me, looking at the vital signs, um, you know, watching for increasing tachycardia and hypotension, decreasing urine output, you should have a Foley catheter for these cases. Um, looking at your base deficit on arterial blood gases, pr pulse pressure variation, those are all, all ways that I'm going to look at, at am I getting, uh, are we losing blood, things that are going to clue me into, should I, do I need to check another arterial blood gas to see what my hemoglobin is. Transfusion thresholds, that's, uh, that's an ongoing discussion that I have with, with the surgeon. You know, in adults, transfusion thresholds are, are around seven for hemoglobin. And I don't think that we can just say that for our adolescent population. You know, say you have a, a hemoglobin of nine, you know, by the time you get to the floor with your drains in, that hemoglobin can be around seven or even six, uh, even the next day. So they may, they may require transfusion on the floor. And and so a lot of surgeons will, will elect to go ahead and transfuse at higher than seven so that, that you can help increase your blood pressure by transfusing and keeping a good normostasis by um, going ahead and transfusing if, you, if the surgeon feels like they're already going to transfuse on the floor. And then using cell saver, I think, is, is important. And before needing to transfuse, using cell saver 
can help mitigate uh, having to transfuse um, allergenically. What about the failure to optimize the post-procedure recovery stage by having good preoperative optimization and using ERAS protocols? Yes. Enhanced recovery after surgery, it's a really hot button topic right now in, in, in surgery. Of course, uh, the adult literature is leading the way and, and becoming more uncommon in pediatric practice now. And it really is a multidisciplinary preoperative uh, care model in, th- in that approach with a, with a team preoperatively. Uh, working with psychology, and we talked about preoperative iron. Patient education is important, letting the patient know what to expect preoperatively, post-surgically. Physical therapy, early removal of the drains, getting on a good bowel regimen are all going to lead to increased functional recovery, decreased pain scores, and decreased length of stay. And that's that's really the goal with with the EROS protocols, or those three endpoints there. And as, and as anesthesiologists, during the case, um, approaching with a multimodal analgesic regimen is important to help decrease opioid use during the surgery and postoperatively. Can you describe some of the approaches to multimodal analgesia? Yeah. I don't want to give the impression that opioids or something to be avoided altogether. Opioids are still a mainstay in most surgeries, but they have some side effects and they can be dose dependent. Things like itching, respiratory depression, nausea, vomiting, and constipation. And if we can limit the amount of opioids that our patients require, I think that that's the goal. So multimodal analgesia combines different classes of medications to target different mechanisms. They're going to be involved in most ERAS protocols. One that I really want to uh, to highlight is methadone. That's getting a lot more traction these days, and using it um, for to decrease opioid requirements. And here at Wake Forest, we use 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams per kilo uh, just before incision of methadone. Other uh, institutions may use it both pre-incisional and in the PACU, and there's other regimens, and it just depends on your comfort level with using methadone, and it's going to be a decision, I think, between you and the surgical team. Using regional anesthetic techniques, uh, things like intrathecal morphine. Intrathecal morphine can be tricky. You can have quite a bit of hypotension associated with uh, what dose you use, and you can also have some post-operative itching, nausea, vomiting with it as well. Uh, But it does last for at least 24 hours and can give some good analgesic relief. So the doses that we uh, recommend are between 5 to 7 micrograms per kilo of intrathecal morphine. Uh, Epidurals have also been shown to decrease opioid requirements. We used epidurals for some time here at Wake Forest and they have good analgesic effect and help reduce PCA requirements. I think one of the things that is a drawback is you can have delayed time to physical therapy because of the effect on the, your motor, your ability just to move your, your, your legs. And it can also mask some, uh, some of the problems that could happen with uh, surgery in uh, neurologic injury. And so some, I think some surgeons can 
take issue with that just for that reason alone. Other uh, regional techniques, erector spiny blocks are becoming more prominent in the literature, and that's also been shown to decrease opioid requirements. I really love this table that you've got at the end of the article with this fantastic error traps checklist. In summary, what do you think are some of the take-home messages from this article, particularly for the occasional spine anaesthetist? Yeah, well, I think the table itself is a, is a great tool for the occasional spine anesthetist. They highlight the error traps that we've discussed today, and it provides an easy checklist to keep yourself out of falling into these error traps and can help guide the anesthetist. I also like to, to really emphasize the team approach that needs to be taken um, with these uh, cases, that everybody is all on board for positioning and what to do when uh, there's neuromonitoring losses or interference, and um, also coming up with a, a plan for the patient to feel good both during the, the, the case and after. Thank you for joining me today to talk about some of the key traps with scoliosis surgery in a really clear and structured way. And thank you to the rest of your team for their really hard work on presenting this excellent paper. This article will be available for free on the journal's website soon. This wraps up our featured article of the month podcast for December and our final one for the year. We've had a really great year with so many authors and audience members from around the world joining in these podcasts. I hope you all have a happy and safe holiday season and please join us in the new year for the next podcast. Until then, cheers.